We recorded this episode of Executive Edge in January 2020. Since then, COVID-19 has dramatically altered the leadership demands placed on all of us. For a focused look at leadership during challenging times, we encourage you to revisit Executive Edge Episode 2, Demonstrating Courageous Leadership in Times of Crisis. At the FJC, we stand ready to help our court listeners in any way we can. Meanwhile, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Executive Edge and that you and your loved ones remain healthy and safe. Coming up on Executive Edge. Values matter. They create soft power. The soft power strengthens not only the person who is using it, but also the institution. In today's episode, we'll discuss what contemporary leadership looks like and where we can find true leadership in today's knowledge-driven society. We'll explore questions such as, what leadership skills do court executives and chief judges need to succeed? How can court leaders effectively use different forms of power to motivate those they lead? And how can developing contextual intelligence help court leaders be more effective? To help shed light on these questions, we're talking today with Harvard University Distinguished Service Professor Joseph Nye. Dr. Nye has served many leadership roles at Harvard, including a decade as Dean of the Kennedy School of Government. He coined the term soft power and is widely viewed as an influential scholar on American foreign policy and leadership. In addition to his many academic accomplishments, he's also served in several government capacities, including 20 years as Deputy Undersecretary of State and currently as a Commissioner for the Global Commission on Internet Governance. Dr. Nye has published 15 books and more than 150 articles. Today, we'll focus our discussion with him on his widely acclaimed book, The Powers to Lead. Our host for today's episode is my colleague, Michael Siegel, Senior Education Specialist for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Michael, take it away. Thanks, Lori. Professor Nye, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. In your book, The Powers to Lead, you cleverly adapt an old song lyric that says, we're looking for leaders in all the wrong places. What do you mean by that? Well, there's a tendency to think that a leader is the person in the highest official position, and it's very rare. In practice, uh, if a leader is somebody who helps a group of people of any size to set some goals and accomplish them, uh, that can happen all through society. So leadership occurs not just in the White House, but leadership occurs in the local city council or in the local library or the local school committee or even the first grade. So it's not really a position necessarily. It's the role, the role of helping people set goals and accomplish them. And it's widely distributed throughout our society, including, of course, the judiciary. Excellent. You define leadership as a social relationship with three key components, leaders, followers, and the context in which they operate. What does this mean for those trying to be effective leaders? Well, the key thing is for a leader to realize that the skills or attitudes and approaches they take in one context can be uh, counterproductive or fail in another context. I've always uh, used the example of Winston Churchill. Uh, If you'd gone to visit London in 1940, about January, 
And you'd say, uh, Winston Churchill, is he a great leader? People would say, oh, he's a washed-up backbench member of parliament. Nobody takes him seriously. Then you go back in June, and you ask the same question. People say, oh, my God, Churchill's the maximum leader. He's saving us. He's, he's, you know, he, he's the man for the hour. You say, well, wait a minute, what happened? I was only here six months ago. And the context changed. The context was that Hitler had broken through the Ardennes and driven the British into the sea at Dunkirk. And the British, who didn't want what they called a wild cowboy in January, wanted somebody who would vow to fight on the beaches and fight in the streets and offer blood, sweat, and tears. So it was totally the change in context. Churchill didn't change a single trait. It was the context that changed. And, of course, in 1945, at the end of the war, even though he was victorious, the British public voted him out. Again, the context changed. They wanted a national health system, not uh, a heroic war leader. I loved your example in your book about Lech Walesa, another leader, Polish leader, who said he feared meetings and minutes more than bullets. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So when he moved from being a protester to running a government, he really, the context changed. Absolutely. And, And anybody who wants to be a leader has to be acutely alert to that change in context. Exactly. And the judiciary is a very unique context. Very much so. Yeah. In your book, you write, there's no profile of an ideal leader. Thank goodness. Can you elaborate on that? Well, it follows from what I just said about context. If what's a good leader varies with the context, then if you tried to do a cookie-cutter profile of what's a good leader, it might work in one context and not another. In fact, all too often, uh, we carry around in our heads stereotypes about uh, uh, you know what's a good leader without realizing that uh, that may change with a different context. There's a study that's actually been done that shows that for, of chief executives of American corporations, uh, if you're taller, it's worth about something like $800 a week in your salary. Um, and Which is bad for people like me. Well, yes, <laughs> it, yes, except you have to ask, what's the causation there? It might be that people choose these taller people because they think that they look more leaderly. But it may be a huge mistake because some of the most impressive and impactful leaders in history have been very short. Think of Napoleon. Think of uh, Deng Xiaoping. I mean, these these are people who were well below average size, but they had characteristics which made them very effective leaders. So if we had a cookie-cutter approach, uh, we'd say, oh, well, a leader has to be six foot five and uh, not bald. And I'm bald, <laughs> and I'm not six foot five. But the point is that uh, uh, that's why I say that you don't want a stereotype, and that stereotype has been also based on uh, race and gender in the past. Yes. And uh, one of the things that's interesting now, in terms of what we need in leadership, people talk about networked leadership instead of hierarchical leadership. And network leadership, you can make an argument that uh, women, for a variety of cultural reasons, have been much better at developing networks and using networks 
than men. So if we had stereotypes simply as the leader is the king of the mountain, gives orders down the hill, uh, you might find that the king of the mountain will be dethroned by the queen of the circle. (laughs) A lot of contemporary leadership analysts seem to favor the transformational style over the transactional style, Jim Burns's concepts. Yet you indicate both are important and necessary. Help us understand the difference between these, particularly when you think about the judiciary. Well, the transactional leader tends to take things as they are and try to settle things as they are. The transformational leader tries to change things uh, to, uh, as one uh, philosopher put it, it's the difference between a leader who's eventful as opposed to event-making. And uh, very often people will celebrate the transformational leader, you know, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, and so forth, say this is what we want. There may be some places where in in some contexts we don't want a transformational leader. Uh, My best example of this is the two presidents Bush. You've got a social control experiment. Half the genetic material is the same. So the question is, one was transactional, the other was transformational. Uh, Bush 41 saw himself as, he used to say, I don't do the vision thing. Bush 43 said, I'm not going to play small ball. I'm going to make a change. I'm going to democratize the Middle East. Well, uh, in trying to do that, he made a mess. His father, on the other hand, by just sort of taking care of the events in, uh, with a great deal of prudence, uh, presided over the end of the Cold War without a shot being fired. So mm-hmm. I, in that case, I'd much prefer the transactional to the transformational. And I think in, in any area in terms of the judiciary, it'd be very much the same. I mean, if a, somebody who's trying to make a radical precedent may find out that uh, they don't have followers and they fall on their face. That's right. And many of our chief judges tell us, I don't want to transform the organization. I just want to keep it going in a positive direction. And we say, well, even that requires a lot of skill. Exactly. Because transactional leadership itself has skills involved. Oh, if you go back to my example of uh, Bush 41, George H.W. Bush, uh, he uh, had extraordinary background in international affairs, great contextual intelligence built up during his career. And so when issues came along that... uh, could have tempted somebody like his son um, to take one action, the father took the other. Uh, when the Berlin Wall came down, people were saying, my gosh, we should be making more of this. This is a huge American victory. We should, we should be crowing about it. And Bush said, I'm not going to dance on the wall. I need to negotiate with Gorbachev. The last thing I need to do is humiliate him. That sense of self-restraint and prudence was how he steered us through a major revolution, the end of the Soviet empire, as I said, without a shot being fired. Absolutely. You talk a lot about power. People can't really lead without power. And yet there are different kinds of power to be an effective leader. Can you talk about those? Well, power is the ability to get others to do the things you want. 
And there are basically three ways you can do that. You can uh, threaten them, coercion. You can pay them. uh, Or you can attract them to get them to want to do something. The third of those I call soft power. The first two I call hard power. And very often uh, it's the ability to mix the hard and soft power into a successful strategy of smart power that uh, that makes all the difference. Soft power alone is not sufficient. Hard power alone may be sufficient in the short run but could breed resentments that lead to more problems in the long run. Uh, figuring out how to mix those skills, when to use them, uh, is really uh, crucial. So, yeah, you can't lead without power. After all, if, if leading means having followers, you have to have people follow you. But they may be following you for attraction rather than because you're threatening or paying them. I think the, the best presentation of this I know is Dwight Eisenhower, who, of course, had been the commander of our military forces in World War II in Europe. And Eisenhower so knew a lot about command and hierarchy. And he says, just giving orders is not leadership. He said, uh, and threatening people is not leadership. It's getting them to do it because they want to. That's leadership. And that's what I call soft power. Going along with soft power, there are soft skills that you talk about, like emotional intelligence, visioning, communication. What would you say about these in the judiciary or any agency? Well, it, it, the judiciary... Uh, needs to use soft power uh, because, uh, you know, their hard power, yes, you can lock people up, you can find them and so forth, but you're, you're, you need to set precedents. You need to develop a respect for, for the law, for the way people are approaching things. And the more you can engender that uh, respect where people want to obey a court order because of their respect for the system, uh, the less you have to lock them up and fine them. Um, so in that sense, uh, the ability to use skills of attraction, emotional intelligence, communication are all uh, uh, examples of this. I was called for jury duty in Massachusetts, and uh, my first reaction is, oh, what a nuisance. <laughs> you know, I've got so many things I'm doing, I, I don't want to spend my time sitting there. And as we were, as we, the prospective jurors, were sitting in the room waiting to be called and examined, uh, we had an address from Margaret Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court, and she explained that, in her view, uh, the judicial system was the most democratic part of our Constitution, that everybody counted, and you counted equally whether you had a lot of money or no money, and that the ability to sit on a jury was a privilege. And after that speech, which was communications, uh, I would say soft power, I felt a lot better about sitting in that courtroom. Yeah, what a great example. Going back to the concept of hard skills or hard power, give us some insight on how leaders in an organization, including the judiciary, can exercise hard hard power? Well, the organization uh, is a crucial skill, uh, which is central to hard power. 
uh, when there's disorganization, there's loss of respect and there's loss of effectiveness. So you lose both in terms of people's willingness to follow, but also your ability to get things done. So a well-administered court system in which people show up at the time of the uh, they're supposed to be there and uh, they're not kept waiting unnecessarily long in which you feel that there has been, I mean, obviously there are times when things run over, you can't do anything about it, but when you feel that there's been due respect for your needs, um, that's uh, that organizational uh, capacity is crucial. And the courts have to be aware of this, have to, have to uh, adjust and, and be aware of these cultural differences. Not that they're going to change the law. The law is unchanging for all those jurisdictions I just mentioned. But that appreciation of how we're applying the law, the feeling of what's just, is this a fair use of bail? Is this a, an unfair use of uh, contempt citation? Uh, and how you explain that then to the people, uh, you're not changing the law, but you are smoothing the edges, so to speak, to, to increase the respect for the judiciary. We're going to move now to an, an area that I know you're interested in because of your recent publication, and that is the area of ethics and morals. You indicate a good leader is one who is both ethical and effective. How do you develop leaders who embrace both? Well, that is a key question. I've just published last week a new book called Do Morals Matter? Question mark. And it looks at presidents and foreign policy from Franklin Roosevelt until Donald Trump. What I argue in the book is that you want leaders to uh, be judged in moral terms on three dimensions. Uh, their motives, their, the means they use are the means, uh, uh, good means, and their consequences. Did they take proper account of the prospect of unforeseen consequences that could have great immoral effects. I often use a homely kind of example for this, which doesn't relate just to foreign policy, but to everything. Suppose your daughter is um, uh, studying for the SATs and she goes to high school dance and the friend says, I'll bring her home early so that she can have a good morning for the exams. And so good motive. Uh, but then suppose it's an icy, rainy night, and as he's driving her home, he ignores the means, which is the amount of speed in relation to the brakes on an icy road, and he skids off the road and your daughter is killed. The consequence is hugely immoral, awful. You wouldn't forgive him because his intentions were good. So you want good intentions or good motives, you want appropriate means, mm -hmm. and you want a careful assessment of probable consequences, including the prospect of unintended consequences that will be highly immoral. And I think that's those three dimensions, what I call 3D ethics, mm -hmm. uh, can be applied to our daily lives, as mm -hmm. in the example I just gave, can be applied to the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches of government. What can we learn from bad leaders? 
Well, bad leaders have lessons to teach us as well because uh, when we look at what they've done, uh, we can try to diagnose why they did it that way. Sometimes they're just mean and nasty people, but sometimes they're well-intentioned or good people, but they didn't pay enough uh, heed to this question of how do the means relate to the consequences. I, again, I'll go back to comparing and contrasting the two presidents, Bush, because you know you're never going to get a closer comparison than that. Um, I think George W. Bush, Bush 43, intended to do good when he invaded Iraq. Um, the fact was that because he didn't understand Iraq, because he didn't pay attention to the pages and pages that have been prepared by the CIA and the and the State Department about how difficult the occupation was going to be, they made a mess of the occupation of Iraq and the net consequences were unfortunate and immoral. So it wasn't that he was a, a bad man trying to do uh, something wrong. He was, let's give him credit as a good man, uh, trying to do something uh, that he thought was right, but without proper attention to the consequences. And that failure to assess the consequences, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I am told that that would be called in law culpable negligence. So we don't excuse somebody. We don't say, oh, everybody has bad luck. Sure, people have bad luck. Jimmy Carter had bad luck with the Iran hostages. Mm -hmm. But you don't, if you make efforts to assess possible consequences and protect against uh, immorality because you're not being adequately prudent, uh, then you get you get off. Mm -hmm. But if you ignore that, then it's culpable negligence. Good people can make bad decisions. Absolutely. And vice versa. Yes. <laughs> Is is one important capacity of leadership an ability to learn from your mistakes? Yes, and and I've always said that uh, one of the organizations in the U.S. government that uh, uh, does this quite well is the American Army, and they have they say what are the principles for understanding leadership, and they sum it up. They call it B B E no K N O W do. Uh, a do, and what that is is B. Think through what are your emotional limitations. Are you going to be, you know, torn uh, by conflicting devices and learn how to control them? No. Have you developed the knowledge to the depth that you can to handle a given situation? And do means do it, but after you do it, have an after-action review. Ask. Okay, I may have done well, could I have done better? Or I may have done quite badly, what was the cause? And the after-action review, as I understand it, is not who can we blame, but what went wrong. Exactly. And that's crucial. That you know, Blame alone doesn't solve these problems, it's learning. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to tell leaders in the judiciary? Well, values matter. And the fact that the way people in the judiciary illustrate and exemplify the values of our democracy 
it makes a huge difference. Uh, many people would say that in a times of turmoil that uh, the judicial branch has stood up well. Uh, and uh, a lot has to do with the behavior. As sometimes it's called judicial behavior mm-hmm. and acting judiciously. So I, I think you know values matter. They create soft power. The soft power strengthens not only the person who is using it, but also the institution that they represent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Michael, and thanks to our listening audience as well. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Executive Edge, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap on Executive Edge Podcast. Did you know that Executive Edge can be delivered directly to your computer or mobile device? Simply go to your podcast app, search for Executive Edge, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Executive Edge is produced by Shelley Easter and directed and edited by Craig Bowden and LaTanya Cox. I'm Lori Murphy. Thanks for listening. Until next time.